Morning again. In the uh, doorways of many homes in the Roman Empire, there's a depiction of Janus. Janus was a god with two faces pointing in opposite directions. Janus would look behind and he would look ahead. God with two faces. And he was a kind of a god of transition, looking behind, looking ahead. And um, he was also kind of a, like a doorkeeper, kind of a gateway. That's why we start, this, we start a new, our, our new year this month, January, is named after Janus. It's January. And what happens for a lot of us in, in January, the first few days of January, is we, we do that. We kind of look behind and, and kind of look at what happened in the past year, and we start to look ahead. And the question for us is, you know, what's ahead of us? What's in the doorway that we'll be walking through into this new year? Now, maybe... This past year was a really good year for you. A really good, good things happened. You were excited about the year. Maybe it wasn't such a good year. Maybe some hard things happened. But whether it was a good year or not so good year, 2013 is gone and you have a fresh year ahead of you. And none of us knows what's going to happen in this year. We don't know, we just don't know what's going to happen. There's lots of things that will happen this year that will be out of our control. But there are some things we do know. We know that as we step through the doorway into 2014, that Jesus will step through with us. We know that if we have entrusted our lives to Jesus, that we can count on him to walk with us and to take us through. We know that regardless of our past, what we've done, what's been done to us, our mistakes, our failures, our hurts, our wounds, we know that Jesus is big enough to cover all of that. He's big big enough to cleanse us and heal us. He's big enough to protect us and keep us. So we walk through a doorway, not by ourselves, but with the God who made us, the Son who saved us, the Spirit who lives inside us to help us. And the thing that's gonna make the biggest difference in this next year, this year 2014, isn't so much What happens to us? The thing that will make the biggest difference is whom will we trust? Where will we put our trust? And where will we keep our focus? The passage we're going to be looking at this morning is from Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 25. And the writer of Hebrews is writing to a group of Jewish Christians, Christians from a Jewish background, probably living in the city of Rome, who've gone through some hard years, really hard years. And Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, kind of like an extended sermon where the writer is trying to encourage the believers 
these Jewish Christians, he's trying to encourage them to hold on to faith and to not lose heart. See, part of what's been going on is they've been experiencing a lot of persecution because of their faith. And some of them are beginning to doubt. They're beginning to doubt whether it was worth it to give their lives to Jesus. They're beginning to, some of them have actually fallen away. Others are sort of drifting away. They've lost their first love. They've forgotten what it was that drew them to Jesus in the first place. They're falling away, they're doubting, they're drifting away. And so the writer of Hebrews writes to them to say, don't let go. Don't let go. Don't forget, Jesus is so much bigger and better than you could even imagine. Don't lose heart, don't let go. Instead, he says, keep your trust in Jesus. Keep your eyes fixed on him, he says in chapter 12. He says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, because we're surrounded by folks in the past who've held on to faith and they're looking down on us now, because of that, do not let yourself fall away. Don't let sin entangle you, but instead, fix your eyes, focus your attention on Jesus, who is the author and the perfecter of faith. What the the writer is saying is, if you keep your eyes on Jesus, he will take you through. And he will protect you and keep you and purify you and mature you. So stay focused. Now the passage we're looking at today is kind of a summary, actually, of the whole book of Hebrews. So let me read it for us. This is Hebrews chapter 10, 19-25. There's a sort of a, there's a brief outline in your bulletin if you want to follow along with that. Hebrews 10, 19 to 25. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is, his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings. Having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching. Let me summarize what this passage is saying, then I'll come back and unpack it sort of phrase by phrase, okay? This is what the writer is saying. That because of who Jesus is, because of what he's done, there are two great facts that have entered our universe. The first great fact is that we have confidence to enter into the most holy place. The most holy place is the place of God's presence. We have confidence to enter into the direct 
presence of God, the writer is saying. And that's a really new thing. The second great fact of the universe is that we have a great high priest. Jesus is our high priest. He's the high priest who represents us before God and represents God to us so that we can know him. Because of these two great facts, the writer says there are three key responses we should make. The first response is that we should draw near to God. We should draw near to him. We should take advantage of the fact that we have full and direct access to him. The second great response, the second key response, is that we should hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. Unswervingly. We should not fall off the path. And then the third thing is we should consider how we may encourage one another, spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Now let me unpack that kind of phrase by phrase. The writer says that we have confidence because of who Jesus is, because of what he's We have confidence to enter into God's very presence, the most holy place. Now the writer is using language from the Old Testament. The most holy place in the, in the Old Testament was the place in the temple that only the high priest could enter, and he could only enter once per year on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Now, every day of the year, priests would offer sacrifices on behalf of the people. But it was only, only on this one day that the high priest could enter into the most holy place. And he could only enter into the most holy place after an elaborate cleansing ritual. He'd enter in carrying the blood of the sacrifice. And when he would enter, he'd be wearing robes. And at the bottom of the robes, there were bells little bells that rang. And he had a red cord tied around his waist. The reason he had the bells and the cord was that it was a dangerous thing to enter into the most holy place. Because even after an elaborate cleansing ritual, what if the priest walked in, the high priest walked in, and then he had this kind of single kind of sinful thought. He'd make himself unclean because of that, and he would be struck dead. The bells on his robes were there so that the folks on the outside, the priests on the outside, if they could hear them uh, tinkling, they knew he was still alive. And if those bells stopped, they knew he was dead. And they weren't going to enter into that most holy place because they were not cleansed enough, but the cord was there to drag them out. To be the high priest on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, was to, be, was to have the most dangerous job in the nation of Israel. Because how could any priest, any priest, regardless of the cleansing rituals, regardless of all the sacrifice, know that he was clean enough? How could any priest be certain that enough sacrifices had been offered? They just couldn't be absolutely certain. It was dangerous to enter into the presence of God. the most dangerous job in a nation of Israel. So how is it that our writer says that we have confidence to enter into the most holy place? 
If the high priests of Israel didn't have conference, how could we have conference? If sacrifice had been offered day after day after day after day after day in hundreds and thousands and tens of thousands, if they weren't enough to be confident, how could we have confidence? Well, the reason is because we don't have just any high priest. We have Jesus, the high priest. And we're not just talking about any sacrifice. We're talking about the sacrifice of the very Son of God. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. He offered his life, his body, as a sacrifice for our sins. So we have confidence. The sacrifice of Jesus isn't a limited warranty. It's a lifetime, eternity warranty. It gives us free and full access to our God. Now, I know some of us struggle with that, struggle believing that we have been forgiven by God. I know some of us struggle. In a few minutes, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. And the Lord's Supper celebrates the fact that Jesus died for our sins on the cross. The cross is for sinners. It's for people who know that they have sinned, who know they cannot save themselves, and have cried out to God in Christ and Jesus, forgive me. I cannot forgive myself. They've entrusted their lives to Jesus. And the cross of Christ has covered their sins. So, if you believe in Jesus, if you know that you cannot save yourselves, if you believe that Jesus can save you, then when, the, when it's time for the Lord's Supper, celebrate. Celebrate joyfully. Celebrate gladly. Celebrate boldly. Now, all of us have stuff in our lives. I know we have stuff in our lives. And we still wonder whether God will forgive us. Well, if you flip a page to Hebrews chapter 11... Hebrews 11 is a chapter about those who have by faith, who have expressed faith in God and God has honored. It's kind of the, it's sort of like the faith hall of fame in the book of Hebrews. Maybe the faith hall of fame in the book of Bible. And it lists a whole bunch of characters who kind of persevered in faith. One of the people it mentions is King David. Let me ask you something. Have any of you ever murdered somebody? King David was a murderer and an adulterer. He committed adultery with a woman named Bathsheba, and then he murdered her husband so it wouldn't get found out. And David is somebody who's forgiven by God. He's in the Hall of Fame. How about, if any of you ever ripped somebody off, deceived somebody, ripped them off? Jacob's in there. Jacob is a deceiver, was a deceiver. He deceived his own brother, ripped off his brother's inheritance. Tricked them. You've got Abraham in there. Abraham, in a sense, sold out his wife, not once, but twice, because he was trying to protect himself. Have you done that? You got the apostle Peter in there. Peter denied Jesus three times, and he's forgiven. He's in the Hall of Fame, the Faith Hall of Fame. And then you've got the apostle Paul, 
Paul, before his conversion, imprisoned Christians. He participated in the murder of Christians. Christians. But when he entrusted his life to Jesus, when he turned his life over to Jesus, he was forgiven. There is no sin that you have committed or can commit that is greater than the blood of Jesus, than the sacrifice of Jesus. If you want to be forgiven, you can be forgiven. You will be forgiven. You will be saved. One of my best friends is a guy named Pete. I've known Pete for over 25 years. Pete and his wife, Debbie, we just knew each other for a long time. And uh, when Debbie was a teenager, she got pregnant. And uh, her parents really kind of pressured her to get an abortion. And she didn't quite feel right about it, but she didn't know what else to do, so she did. She got an abortion. Then a few years later, she met Pete. And uh, they started dating, and they got engaged, and Debbie got pregnant again. And Pete was in grad school, and uh, he wasn't quite ready to be a father. So he kind of talked Debbie into getting an abortion a second time. And she didn't feel right about it again, but she did it. And then Pete and Debbie got married, and they loved one another. But there was a barrier between them. And they didn't quite know what to do with it. And then they sometime after that, became followers of Jesus. But there was still kind of a barrier between them, still kind of a block. It, was, it wasn't a terrible marriage, but it, but it wasn't all it could have been. And uh, they got active in church. They were, in tr- they were active participants in our worship services. They, they gave very generously. They tithed. In fact, they did above tithing. They were involved in uh, service ministries. They were involved in a small group, in the same small group that Leslie and I led. We were in a small group together for a long time. And then one day, I remember getting a phone call from Debbie saying, can we get together to talk? So we got together, and she started telling me her story, tears running down her face. She, she told me about the guilt and the shame she felt about these two abortions and about the, the, the fact that she just could not, she could not forgive Her parents, to some degree, she could not forgive her husband, Pete. She could not forgive herself, and she just could not believe that God could forgive her for these two abortions. So we talked for a long time, and we prayed, and then I got together with Pete, and I could see the shame and the helplessness on his face as he kind of talked about how he felt, that he felt guilt and shame and all that as well. And both of them, every time they looked at one another, they felt ashamed. That was the barrier in their marriage at that point. And all the stuff they did in church, in a way, was a a way to try to justify this, but they knew it wasn't enough. They knew there was nothing they could do to wipe that away. And so we kept talking and praying, and slowly over time, it began to dawn on them that it was for them that Christ died. That the blood of Christ was big enough strong enough, deep enough to cover even their guilt and shame. And they were able to start letting go of the guilt and trusting that they were, in fact, forgiven. 
Now flash forward some years. Pete and Debbie now have one of the most vile marriages I know. It's warm, it's deep, it's joyful, it's fun. And Debbie started this ministry to women who have had abortions, a ministry of hope and of healing and of forgiveness. And Pete's a partner with her in it. They have taken what they experienced and allowed the light of Christ and the life of Christ to flow into it. And it's transformed their lives and they've been used as agents of healing in other people's lives. There's nothing that any of us can do that's bigger or stronger than what Christ has done for us on the cross. There's always fresh hope in the cross of Jesus Christ. And God can take a past, whatever it is, and he can cleanse it and heal it and redeem it and use it for good. We have confidence to enter into the very presence of God. Every moment, every day, any time, we have confidence because of what Jesus has done for us. He's able to save us completely. He is our great high priest who represents us to God and says, Father, these are my people. I have died for them. And the Father says, because of that, they're my people, my daughters and sons, and they are clean before me. Jesus is a great high priest because he saves us completely. Completely. The Old Testament priests had to offer sacrifice day after day after day after day, and you'd be forgiven, maybe you'd be forgiven, and then you'd get guilty again because of your sin. Jesus' sacrifice covers all of it for all time. We're saved completely. He's a great high priest because Hebrews 4 tells us he sympathizes with our weaknesses. He understands our weaknesses. He's been tempted in every way just as we are, except that in his case, he's without sin. But he understands what goes on in our lives and how we process life and how we react to things. You know, you've probably, maybe you've had times said to yourself, how could I have done it? How could I have been so stupid? Jesus understands how, but he doesn't hold it against us. And he's a, he's a great priest, a great high priest, because he's always for us. He holds nothing against us. And he's able to keep cleansing us Keep giving us fresh starts. So, again, because of these facts, because we have constant, because we have a great high priest, the writer says, So let's take advantage of this. Let us draw near to God. Let's draw near. He says, To draw near with a sincere heart and with full assurance of faith. So we, let's draw near to God. Let's not take God lightly. Let's not play games with God, but let's draw near with a sincere heart and with full assurance of faith, knowing that we are forgiven, we are cleansed, we are welcomed, we are invited. Let's draw near to God because we need God. 
We sang that a few minutes ago. We, we need God. We need him more with each day. We need the wisdom of God and the forgiveness of God and the strength of God and the hope of God, the joy of God. We need the love of God. We need the encouragement and comfort and peace of God. We need God. Let's not let anything get in the way of us drawing near to God. The writer also says, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. The hope he's talking about is the hope of the gospel, what Jesus has done for us to save us, to reconcile us to God. What Jesus has done for us to cleanse us of our sins, to uh, enable, to, to forgive us, to save us. That, what Jesus has done is a sure and certain hope. Our trust in the gospel is a trust in something that's absolutely rock solid. The gospel is solid. It's good news. We can trust in Jesus. We can focus on Jesus. That's what it means to hold unswervingly. It means to to put all of our trust in Jesus and not anything else, not even our sin. It's put our focus on Jesus and not get distracted, not let ourselves drift away. We live in a culture that keeps vying for our attention. It keeps trying to grab us. And it's easy in our culture to just kind of lose track of God, to lose track of Jesus. But it wasn't just easy in our culture. It's always been that way. That's why the writer again in Hebrews 12 says, let's fix our eyes on Jesus. Fix our eyes. Fix our focus on Jesus. He tells them that because they're drifting away. It's really easy to drift away from Jesus. It's really easy to let other things distract us. Work or hobbies or things that happen to us or other people. It's easy. But if you want this year to be full and deep and real and purposeful, fix your eyes on Jesus. Keep focused on Jesus. Keep your trust and hold unswervingly. Do what you need to do to stay connected to Jesus. Whatever it is. Then he says, let us consider how to spur one another on toward love and good deeds. That word considers an interesting word. It's a Greek word, katanoamen. To consider means to pay attention to, to focus on, to watch carefully. And the idea behind it is that you intentionally look at the people around you and you look at who they are and what they're going through and how they need encouragement. He says, consider, pay attention to, focus on, get to know them so that you know what their needs are. You know how to encourage them. That's why we emphasize life groups here at Journey so much. We think it's important that every person be involved in some kind of life group so that you can get to know the people around you. You can observe them, pay attention to them so that you're able to encourage them and so that they can get to know you so they can encourage you. 
That's why we meet together. We don't meet together just so that we can socialize. We don't meet together uh, for, just for our own benefit. There is benefit, but we don't meet just for, just for our own benefit. We meet together so that we can encourage one another, spur one another on toward love and good deeds. We meet together so that we can help one another uh, draw near to God because we need God. We meet together so that we can help one another persevere in faith. We meet together so that we can uh, together encourage one another toward love and good deeds because when we express, when we encourage one another and we help one another toward love and good deeds, what we're doing is we're helping one another experience the presence and the goodness and the grace of Jesus. And we're exposing the goodness and the grace of Jesus to all those around us. So we experience and we expose when we encourage one another toward love and good deeds. I started um, by talking about Janus, the doorkeeper of the Roman households, the minder of the gate. One day Jesus said, I am the gate of the sheep. Whoever enters through me will be saved. He will come in and go out and find pasture. He said, the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy, but I have come that you might have life and you might have it to the full. The shepherd in Jesus' day would gather his sheep into a pen during the dangerous night hours. And then when they were in the pen, the shepherd himself would lay across the threshold of the door. He would lay across the doorway and he would become the door, the gate, keeping harm out, keeping the sheep safe from harm. And then when the morning came, he would get up and he'd lead the sheep out into pasture. He was a gate and a door. Jesus is a gate and a door. We need the protection of Jesus. We do. Jesus isn't kidding when he says, the thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. He's talking about the devil. We have an enemy who is trying to harm us. He's trying to kill us. He's trying to destroy us. He's trying to seal away the life of God in us. We have an enemy. And so we draw near to God. We draw near to Jesus because Jesus protects us. He's the gate keeping the devil away from us. But there's another part to this that we need to focus on as well. Jesus isn't just the gate, but he's also a doorway. He's the one who opens the door and leads us out into the world. He leads us into a life of meaning and of hope and of purpose. And we need that too. We need Jesus' protection. We need Jesus' leadership into the world. His lordship, his his if you will, um, sending into the world. Jesus has given us a mission and a purpose. We're called to that. And so he becomes both our protector and our sender. 2014, the new year is before us. What's on the other side of the doorway? The other side of the doorway is the world. 
The other side of the doorway is Jesus leading us into the world, into a life of fullness, of meaning, of purpose. The other side of the doorway is cleansing and forgiveness, fresh each day, each moment of each day. The other side of the world is the presence of God beckoning us. The other side of the doorway into 2014 is life. We have a new year. We have a new way opened by Jesus. We have a new start, really, each day. We have a new life that's bigger than just ourselves, bigger than our problems, bigger than our sins. We have a life that's big enough to change the world because we carry the life of Jesus in us and we reveal the life of Jesus to the world before us. So let's draw near to God with great confidence and boldness. Let's hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. Let's consider how to encourage one another toward love and good deeds so that Jesus is glorified and people are helped and we're freed. We can do that by the grace of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you, thank you, Lord, for Jesus, for the sending of your Son. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for what you have done for us. Thank you that you have opened up a new way for us. Thank you for the certain hope of your goodness and presence, forgiveness and grace. Thank you for the life that's in front of us this year. Thank you, Lord, that though we don't know what will happen, we know who will be with us. We know what you have for us. We know what you can do for us. We are grateful. Lord, we ask that you would encourage us. We ask that you would reveal yourself to us afresh. We ask that you would keep wooing us. We ask that you'd help us to make the most of this year to the praise of your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.